Welcome to The Smiley Connection, a podcast brought to you by the Smiley Professionals Network and The Smiley. On this show, we'll bring you professionals from all walks of life and across all industries to help you grow professionally and personally. We'll laugh, we'll learn, we'll connect. And who knows, you may find your next Smiley Connection on our show. Hello and yali with everyone, it's Sony Gassim here. This episode is part two of my conversation with Anar Amin. She's a regional academic lead for the Ismaili Tharika Religious Education Board, focusing on West and Central USA. She's had a decade of experience teaching within the secondary teacher education program. And right now she oversees 20 Jamaat Khanas and coaches a dozen teachers. On this episode, Anar dives deeper into her childhood, starting in Pakistan, and details some of her step-related travels like teaching Afghan Ismailis in Essen, Germany. She also shares advice to aspiring educators. For instance, I tell her about how I was a quiet kid who didn't really participate in religious education center classes, and she details how teachers can help other students like me feel more comfortable. Now, if you didn't get a chance to listen to the first part of my conversation with Anar, I'll catch you up, though I highly recommend hitting pause on this episode and going back to the last one. In the previous episode, we get to know about Anar's day-to-day responsibilities, which actually involve quite a lot of projects, as well as how she balances work with Seva. She also talks about the joys of her job. It's so exciting to see that you have inspired and impacted someone's life because you're able to provide them a space to converse. How she got involved with STEP. It was so shocking and abrupt for all of us when my father passed away that it sort of shattered our faith. And I think it shattered it more for my brother and I than did my mom. I just could not fathom that someone else who wasn't a smiley hurt my father and thus caused his demise. I think possibly why my faith shattered so much was because I didn't understand it to the fullest extent. So I went to STEP. And how the program impacted her life. My brother still had a lot of questions that I couldn't answer. So I set up a conversation between him, myself, and Dr. Kareem Gulamali. And that 30-minute conversation turned into two hours. To be able to facilitate that conversation with confidence and with resources and understanding, that makes me really proud of myself and of the program and just solidifying and crystallizing my faith for me, man, thank you. Like, thank you. Now, let's continue on with Anar's story. So you grew up in Dallas? Yeah, most of my life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where were you for, for the other parts of your life? So I was born in Pakistan, in Karachi. My parents moved to the States when I was eight in 1994. We stayed in Richmond, Virginia for about six months, and then we moved to Florida, Fort Lauderdale. We were there for about two years. I think we would have stayed there because it was nice. However, my father, my mom, and my brother all started getting asthma attacks. My dad already had asthma, but my brother and my mom were starting to feel a little bit. So the doctor had recommended that because it's so humid here and it's the environment that you should try somewhere drier climate, which Dallas is that. And so we transitioned to Dallas and my family stayed here. And after the STEP program, I've moved in Chicago, taught there. I've moved to Austin and I taught there. And 
In Pakistan, both of Anar's parents were educated and had successful careers. Anar's dad was an accountant and ran a business. Anar's mom was a nurse midwife. But once they arrived in the United States, Anar's parents had to start all over again. You know, when we were in Karachi, we did well. We were comfortable. And when we moved to the States, that was not the case anymore. We were not comfortable. We didn't do well. My parents' degrees did not equate here so easily. And they didn't want to go back to school because they've got two little kids to feed, right? And so they just picked up any jobs, odds and ends, whether it was their fast food restaurants or the grocery stores and stuff. And we struggled a lot. But it was so interesting that my parents never really let it on that we were either at or below the poverty line. I have no idea how my mom, she's a rock star, super frugal and organized with the money that we survived. We did not have any savings, but we always had food on the table. And she made that penny last a lot longer than I think others would have been able to. But also that taught me and my brother a value system of understanding that as a child, you may not have what every other child has in the neighborhood. And so we never really like threw tantrums about wanting anything. We never really asked for anything. We didn't have an allowance. That wasn't even a concept. But my parents always made sure that we had clean clothes and we had food and they gave us all the love that they could give us to be able to survive. So obviously the value of money, the value of family, tradition and culture and just being good people was really drilled in us. And I think it still stands true till today. Like I'm in education, I'm not getting compensated as much as I want, but I love it. And I think the relationships and experiences that we've had really stem from what my parents taught us in terms of skill sets and characteristics. When you're growing up as a child, like McDonald's Happy Meal was like the thing. Like you go for a Happy Meal, you get a little toy, you get excited. We never really got that because that's not something that my parents could afford all the time. So when we did go to Mickey D's or anything that we thought was different than home food, we always shared something nice. But there came a point in time where I remember till this day, every time I would ask my mom, this is five, six years ago, and I'd be like, oh, mom, do you want to just grab some coffee from Starbucks or McDonald's before my class starts? Because she would always accompany me. And she's like, no, 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 don't waste money. Like, it's okay. Like, I'll just drink the chai that I have in my hand and we'll be okay. And she kept saying no and no and no. And you don't really think much about it because then one day, I don't know what switch, but she started saying yes. And I was like, okay, mom. Yes, I will get you a coffee. I will get you and myself some fries before we go in because it's a long night. And I just felt this sense of like, okay, a, not only can I give her what she gave us and provide back, but I can give her like these little things that she could never say yes to or felt guilty for or we didn't have growing up. So now like we go out for dinners and like we get nice things and she doesn't ever have to worry. And there's never a moment where she needs to worry about anything. That's great that you're in a position where you could do that for your mom. One of Anar's favorite aspects of the STEP system was being able to travel to different places for lesson-filled field trips. For those applying, if you don't know, we have field trips and the field trips take you to Cairo, Egypt and to Spain. So we went to Cordoba, Granada and Malaga. 
And obviously the new cohorts are going to be able to go right now because of the situation. And they have to also see what the political scene is like in Egypt. But you get to walk the streets that our imams walked in. You get to walk the streets of the scholars that walked through. You get to see 800 years or 700 years of Muslim rule in a now Eurocentric country. And that's like an immersive learning experience. And I want to be able to go to Tunisia next. I've done Morocco and other places where our imams were in hiding and came out as Sigil Masa in Tunisia. And I want to be able to go do that. And I think that it's not even just the traveling part, it's this learning, right? This immersive learning and the way that you learn is by touching and doing and seeing and experiencing. So if you're interested in applying for STEP, please know that the field trips are really awesome as well. And that's where I really stepped out of the United States for the very first time. And not only am I going to London, I get to go to these other fun places too. During her step journey so far, Anar has traveled to many cities and countries, including Los Angeles, Arkansas, Chicago, and Germany. Is there a favorite place that you've been to? And second thing, out of all the places that you've been to and experienced, was it hard for you to have a place where you're rooted because you're always moving around? How did that affect you in your personal life and your professional life? I think my favorite experience was when I taught in Essen, Germany, because it was a majority Afghan Jamaat. And they had migrated from Afghanistan to Germany. And their first language was Farsi that they spoke. And their second language was German, which is because of their country that they resided now. And then the third language was English, which is where I come in and try to teach it in English. So I've got a translator in front of me helping to translate back and forth. And I've got ages 8 to 22 in my classroom. Oh, that's a huge range. Right. And it's not even just secondary students. It's 8 to 22-year-olds. And I loved that because their thirst for the knowledge didn't really matter the age that you were. And as much as they struggled and I struggled to try to communicate as best as we can, we tried to make it work somehow. And the best part of it was, is that they treated us like family, right? In any culture that we go in, we get treated as guests. But in this particular one, as family was amazing because we'd be invited over for dinners and we'd have kabuli and it was really amazing Afghan food, which was my first time trying. And then when we attended Jamaat Khana in Essen, they would recite the Golden Jubilee for months, but then they would do it in Farsi first. And so I got to hear Farsi live in front of me at the podium, someone saying it. And then they were so sweet. They repeated in English for me and my, my co-teacher so that we could also understand that day. So I think these experiences really helped me to understand why we do what we do as tough teachers and the fact that we have this diversity that's out there. And that not only do you have to be sensitive to the traditions that are there, they're also sensitive to the ones that you come from as well. So it's a mutual help. I'm curious to know if you have thoughts about, you know, having experienced or having been able to build a relationship with Afghan Ismailis in Germany. Is there anything in the United States that the Ismaili institutions can do better to help out Ismailis that aren't from a South Asian background? I think the Jamaati institutions are doing a lot. And I feel that we can always do more and we can do better. And as individuals, I think it is our responsibility to not only rely on the institutions, but go out there and do it yourself. So if you see someone in Kane and you know they're from the Central Asian tradition or Iranian or Syrian, go up and say, Yali, mother, then say hi. And I think that that's a good first step. 
Ask them their name. What do you do? How long have you been here? Oh, how's it going? Do you have little kids? Have you joined REC yet? Like, this is also your responsibility. And it's not just left up to the institutions as a body to do something. So I think, yes, we can always do better. I think we need to have more representation. I think we need to have more inclusion. And we know that all it takes is for us to nominate that name. You need three nominations for some of these institutional leadership positions. So put it in. Find the right person. Put in a woman. Put in a woman's name. Three nominations, all three women of different traditions. I think it starts from the bottom. It's not an institutional always on top. It's it needs, needs to be from us. And we have to understand what inclusion means. You also have those that are marginalized where they're elderly and they may not have anyone or they are of a financial background that is under the poverty line. Like these are hard, hard conversations, but we have to not shy away from them. And I think it really starts for someone listening to me today out there and going out and having a conversation and trying to figure out how you can help them. And then when you were in London getting the dual master degree, you share some of the experiences that you went through like day one of being in class and just what was that like? What did you guys study? Was it a hard learning curve? Just kind of walk us through those things, especially for people who may be interested in, in the yeah. STEM program. Yeah, that's such a good question. So my first class, it was a history class, Islamic history. And the first question that they ask is, all right, where did Prophet Muhammad get his revelation and what happened? And we have five countries that are represented in cohort three, India, Pakistan, Tajikistan, Canada, and USA. And you could see that the majority of the Indians, Pakistanis, and Tajiks knew the answer because they were brought up with this understanding, whether they had Islamiyat, which is Islamic history in Pakistan, or just general knowledge for them. And then you have the Westerners, quote unquote, the Canadians and the Americans that like some people raise their hands. And I was one of those, whoa, I am 23 years old and I have gone to REC religiously from the day I was born and I don't answer to this. And I was seriously not embarrassed, but really felt sad for myself that I wasn't critically thinking enough to be able to search the answer prior to going to this program. And this is totally vulnerable. I promise you now I know everything that I can know after reading. But that really humbled me because I realized I didn't know a lot about my fate. So like I mentioned earlier, right? Like if I didn't know much, then my anger at God wasn't as justified because I don't even know why I was mad. I don't even know why that thought came into my mind. So as I'm learning all of these things and I'm getting more and more understanding of my faith, that I'm becoming more and more content, then it really didn't matter whether on that day one I couldn't raise my hand or not. Because now I'm going to make sure that the students that I teach and the adults that I teach know that answer as well. Um, and I think that's that's what like my mission and my purpose is. And then how has working for the institutions influenced your relationship with your family? I traveled a lot pre-COVID because I took care of the West and the West has Washington and all of Cali. So you have North Cal, South Cal, and then you have the central region where you've got all these other states as well. And yes, I taught in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I loved the Jamaat there. It was amazing. It felt like home. I never stayed at a hotel. I always stayed at the principal's house. And 
their grandma, grandpa were my grandma and grandpa and auntie would cook me pokoras when it rained and it was just perfect. So it felt like family, but it's really difficult. It takes a toll on your own family because you're never there. You're never there for the big events. I missed out on weddings. I missed out on births of my little cousins, birthdays for my little cousins, my own birthday sometimes gets spent at a conference for Ithra and like giving time to your family, right? And also personally, I want to have a family one day. And sometimes my schedule is really difficult where socializing becomes really difficult as well. And so here I am trying to balance it all. And it's really, really difficult. I think during COVID, I've grounded myself in Dallas. I haven't flown since then for work. And it's been good. It's been really, really nice to just sit at home. However, I do miss it. I'm missing the jamaat. I'm missing the kids. I miss teaching in a different city. And every time I went for work somewhere, it was always for either meeting a conference, a teaching opportunity, or starting a new endeavor, right? And I've opened up step in Chicago and in Austin and places like that and Florida and Little Rock and all of these places. So I think for me, establishing the centers so that they can function, you know, with the step system is really important. But yeah, personally, it takes a toll on you. It really does. And sometimes you feel like, though I'm sitting next to my mom on the couch or trying to watch an Indian movie, I'm falling asleep and Bichari is trying to like spend time with me. Do you have any advice for people who are interested in the education field? I think there's two kinds of buckets of people. There's the first bucket, those that are sort of in the early stages of their college phase. And they're thinking about an education degree and thinking about, oh, I want to be a teacher, but not sure what grade level or what subject. And then there are those who maybe they didn't pursue education, they did something else for a number of years, but they want to pivot. Do you have advice for either of those buckets? Absolutely. I think that both the buckets actually are the ideal candidates for definitely the STEP system. And because we want that, we want that diversity and different way of thought. We have a few teachers that do have educational backgrounds. So if you have that, that is a great, great advantage. Definitely work a little bit, work outside a little bit, get yourself a secular school system job for at least a year if you can. Substitute if you can, if you feel like in the interim you don't want to get a secular school job. I would also recommend you get IB certified if you can. I think that really, really helps because of the critical way that you start thinking when you are certified. So I think that if you are a educator, keep going, like stay on that track, gain as much expertise as you can from the outside as well, because everything that you gain on the outside, you're going to have to bring it in and it's going to be amazing. Especially now, I guess with COVID, like virtual learning, that is the new thing. I don't think it's going anywhere. I mean, it was always there. It just wasn't in the forefront. So definitely get some understanding of the best pedagogies that are out there for virtual. Additionally, regardless of which bucket you fall into, pick up a book, read about Prophet Muhammad, (laughs) pick up the IS curriculum for secondary. I'm only using Prophet Muhammad as an example because it's the basics, it's the foundation. I think the more you know, the more you literally will grow, like Dr. Seuss said. So when you go in knowing the content that you're about to teach, you're going to do phenomenal in the two years that you're in London because that's what you're doing. You're in your field experiences and you are in the secular school systems in the UK as well. So you have to teach Islam there because they have religion classes as core classes. So if you're an educator, like that's a great path. If you're not an educator and you're trying to pivot, oh my God, that is an even bigger advantage in my opinion, because if you're a math major or a biochem major and you're coming in, 
or a nurse. We have all of these individuals that have pivoted, right? Engineers, nurses, doctors. You get to bring in a whole other side and integrate it into what we're learning. What I love doing sometimes is to bring in what the kids learn in the secular school and kind of bridge the gap a little bit. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. So if you have another field that you were already a part of, that's amazing because that's something I have then, right? So I think in both buckets, those are really good things for you to do. And the other one would be to go teach an REC because that's the best practice you're going to get. Whether it's ECD, whether it's primary, whether it's being a support teacher for step teachers in secondary or being a share teacher for 11th and 12th grade, get yourself to the door, help out. The more you are with the kids now, the easier it'll be for you to understand what you're coming back to. Because sometimes it's a culture shock for some people. They're like, oh, I thought I could handle fifth grade, but this 12th grade is, yeah, it's different. (laughs) It's drastically different. So, Are there any books or podcasts or anything like that that really helped guide you through your life, whether it was professionally or personally? Anything that's inspired you that you'd love to share with the listeners? Yeah, I think personally, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. I think that's how you pronounce it. That is a game changer. That amazing, amazing book for you to really understand who you are. There's also Braving the Wilderness by Brene Brown. I think those two are definitely like really awesome personal ones. And then for faith-based, I mean, I would just start with No God But God by Riza Aslan. I think that's a really good foundation. And of course, a short history of the smileys, you know, that's something that if you really want to know about our imams, like that's really a good one. Yeah. Oh, oh, and The Alchemist. Oh, that is my favorite book of all time. If you have not read The Alchemist, I dare you to. I literally dare you to. And then go through the step program and reread it again. And oh my gosh, the connections you're going to make the second time around when you read it. Oh, phenomenal. Like I get goosebumps every single time, every single time. I remember when I was in REC and there were times where I just did not pay attention and the teacher would try really hard. I'd be the quiet one in class and they'd always be like, hey, Sony, do you have something to say? And then after class, they'd talk to me and be like, so why aren't you participating? In my head, I'm like, I just don't want to talk about this stuff, right? Like I was also shy and also it's like, who cares about what I have to say? Like that was my mentality. So from a teacher's point of view, especially when you are teaching Therika classes, what are some tips and tricks that you have for other teachers in terms of helping students feel like they're comfortable or feel like they can open up and feel like they can participate. Do do you have any advice? Yeah, I have two really important ones. One is to build that relationship, build that rapport. And I think that when the students respect you and they understand who you are, then they'll happily come to class and they'll happily listen to what you have to say because you're happily going to listen to what they have to say. And a lot of that, I think what I do is I kind of have them tell me their story in the first day. Like, hey, what's up? What's up with you? Who are you? Just like you asked me earlier. And then I share a little bit about myself, right? I tell them where I come from, what I do, the incident that's happened in my life. And so if I get teary-eyed at something, please don't think I'm weird. And they're like, no, Miss Amin, like we get it. We understand. I lost my grandfather too. I lost my uncle too. And then they start opening up. So you have to be a little bit vulnerable. Obviously, there is a very good thick line between being a teacher and, and, and a student, but you're also a role model and you're also someone there to shape their lives. So how do you want to shape it? So building that relationship, I think, is really, really important. 
The second thing is that, yes, like I get it. I have a content that I need to teach, right? But that doesn't mean that it's devoid of the individual's experiences that are sitting there in front of me. So, Sonny, what did you want to learn about when you were young? That is a great question. <laughs> what did you want to talk about? What were some of the topics? Nothing related to REC. <laughs> Perfect. Tell your teacher that. Ask the kids that. Ask, what do you actually want to talk about? Well, what do you have questions about? Whether they are faith or not faith related. And don't ask me personal questions. Like, ask, like genuinely, what are you worried about? What are you thinking about? And so you list those questions in the beginning of the year. You categorize them faith-based and not faith-based. And the not faith-based are really easy to integrate in your check-ins and your activities and your you know, breaks. And you're just musty mazaking with them on the side. But all the faith-related ones, you can also bring in during your content. Say, okay, guys, remember like question number two that you guys had and three people really wanted to know about it. I'm about to answer this today for you guys. Let's have this gray-shaded area conversation. But you have to be able to say, okay, not only are you guiding the curriculum because you have a mandate to me, you have a objectives and aims and values and outlooks that you need to impart, but the students are also driving the conversation. So what is it that they really want to know? If today's topic is about the persecution that the prophet had to face and the society had to migrate. Well, I mean, that's a great, great connection to migrations that happened to America. Like most of the students are gonna be from immigrant families. Most of the kids are probably gonna go through some sort of a bullying or something that happens in their schools that they don't wanna tell anybody else, but maybe they're comfortable enough to tell you and some sort of a persecution, right? And then you have current events that happen in a daily life that you can address and reference and talk about. So you got to bring it full circle, right? You're teaching this whole child, you're teaching holistically. And a great vision that Ithrab USA has is that we want to make sure that our students and our youth are well-rounded and holistic and that we impart some ethics and morals and values. But the only way to do that is through talking it out. So it's not transactional. It's not mechanical. It's very much a getting to know you conversation. Anar's passion in learning about various faiths and connecting with people has brought her to working on an interfaith book club for women in Dallas. The Daughters of Abraham is a organization that started right after 9-11 by some women that really wanted to ensure that they understood the other, quote unquote. And the only way to do that was to read scholarly things or even like personal anecdotal narratives and talk to the other person that's sitting in front of you. So they had started the chapter and I was like, this is A, totally up my alley and B, I'm really interested. So this book club that I founded the Dallas chapter for with two other women as our leads, I represent the Muslim voice in not necessarily the essentialized view of what Islam is, but more so I am the lead for, oh, hey, Eid's coming up. So logistically, let's not have our book club at this time. Or, hey, everybody, let's relax, calm down. This is not an attack conversation. But of course, then I get to also make them aware of my Islam, which is of the Ismaili Shia faith. So I was really excited. And now we have a group of 20 women and we meet bi-monthly. We read a book from a different tradition every time, every month. And we discuss it for at least an hour, hour and a half online. And as soon as we can, and it's safe to do so, we want to meet up in person and, and celebrate each other's holidays and discuss and just really get to know one another on a personal level. So I'm really excited about that. So last question. 
Are there any other overall takeaways or advice that you'd like to give to listeners about anything at all, whether it's professional development or personal development? The biggest lesson that I've learned is to have care and compassion and empathy for the person sitting in front of you. So whether it is my colleague, whether it is my superior, whether it is someone I'm coaching and mentoring, whether it is a stakeholder that is a parent, a student, or a management member, you have to know that they are coming from a different place and a better place than what you're thinking of at the moment. We need to talk to soul to soul. So what's really happening? And I think that's a really great lesson that I've learned. And that's something that doesn't mean that you let go of your own feelings or you don't validate your feelings and the others, but you really learn from how to be sensitive to the other person that's sitting there. And I think you have to apply that in every aspect of faith anyway. So whether it's in your personal life as well, like how do I then talk to significant others? How do I then talk to my family members? Am I looking at them with compassion, care, and kindness at every point of the way? I can't kick my students out if they're not behaving properly. Like that's not even a thing that we do. We have a conversation. We say, okay, what's happening? Why weren't you participating? What's going on? Let's have this conversation. What is it that I can provide you that helps you in class today? So you do the same thing in your personal life, right? You don't just like walk out of a conversation that you're having that's not going the way you want. You gotta sit down and discuss it. So I think that's like a really big thing that I learned. And the other thing is that, I mean, this probably sounds really cliche, but I'm okay with it. You have to trust yourself that everything that you're doing, as genuine as it is, is that it will be rewarded in some capacity for you. And that's what keeps me going. I know that I do this not for the money, like it's never for the money. I do this because I know I can make a difference and I would love to be able to do this on a larger scale. But one day. Well, inshallah, I can't wait to see when that happens. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I had a wonderful time reflecting and like reminiscing, actually. Thank you all for listening to this episode of The Smiley Connection. If you'd like to reach out to Anar or want to know more about the books and other resources mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes. Also, a quick announcement, the Smiley Connection will be off the week of March 21st for Navroz, the Persian New Year. So I hope you all have a joyous Navroz with your families and friends. If you're enjoying the show so far, don't forget to rate us on the Apple or Google Podcast apps and or leave a review. Five-star rating goes a long way to help us boost our message and get more people to listen to these compelling stories. If you're not ready yet to review or rate us, give us another try with the next episode. And if you know of any cool people with inspiring stories or have any other feedback, drop us a line at ipnpodcast at ipnonline.net. This episode was produced by me and edited by the talented Cassidy. Our cover art is designed by Nadia Khan and Shaquille Mohamed. Marketing for this episode was carried out by Simin Jawani. Also, many thanks to Zohar Moment, the head of strategic initiatives at IPN, and Farhan Manjiani for all his helpful guidance and charm in securing speakers. Music included in this episode are Ambient Grand Piano Solo for Meditation by Julius H. Aura Meditation by Tim Moore. Background Ambient by Winking Fox. Shangri-La by Kelly Castor. And Rainbows and Puppy Dogs by Astrofrack. Thanks so much for listening.